Have you ever, have you ever done the right thing and everything goes wrong? You ever been there? Ever done the right thing and everything goes wrong around it? There was a, um, there was a, a bunch of kids, four kids, uh, in Beijing, China. Went out to the lake. And uh, two boys, two girls. The girls decide, the boys are kind of messing around. Uh, teenagers, they, the girls decide they're going to walk around the lake. And it's just kind of a little small pond, and they're holding hands. And, um, and they're walking around the lake. Well, one of the girls slips and falls in and pulls the other girl with her. And, the, you know, there's a big to-do. And, the, and the, the boys, who one of them's up on the, on the shore, the other one's in the lake, but not too far away. They hear the splash, they hear the screams, and they start, they do their best to get there. They're swimming, they're swimming, they're getting there as fast as they can. And um, the boy who was in the water gets there first, and he gets there just as these girls are sinking into the deep water. And he reaches out, and he tries to grab this girl's hand, and it slips through his fingers. And by the time the other boy gets there, the girls are gone, and it is a tragedy. But then the tragedy gets worse because the parents of the girls decide they are going to sue these boys, and the boys end up having to pay. They settle, and they have to pay $8,000 each to these parents. Um, and the, the tragedy, the crazy thing is if they'd have sat on the sidelines and done nothing, According to the law in China, they would have been liable for nothing. You ever done the right thing and everything goes wrong? There was a, um, a, a, a night that a bunch of 20-somethings were going out in Oakland, California. And uh, <clears throat> there was a big group of them, so there were two cars. And they were going from, you know, party to party. They were kind of doing their thing. Um, on their way in the two cars, uh, one of them was driving erratically, ended up in a major car accident, you know, flipping the car, the whole shebang. It was, it was scary. And the, and the car behind stopped and the girl was in there and her friend was in the car. And so she got out of her car and she ran to see if she could help this girl. And she started, you know, she'd seen movies and she was worried that somehow this car was going to explode. And her, her friend was stuck in the passenger seat. And so she, she pulled her out. She ripped her out of the passenger seat, trying to be helpful to her friend. And it turns out there was no risk of explosion. That just happens in the movies for the most part. There was, she, her, her life really wasn't in, in danger except that in the accident she had gotten a spinal injury. And when her friend heroically pulled her from the car, she paralyzed her friend. You ever tried to do the right, it's not always, it's not always that life and death, but have you ever tried to do the right thing and everything goes wrong? Like maybe, maybe this guy right here. <laughs> the laugh is my favorite part of that video. 
Have you ever tried to do the right thing and everything goes wrong? I wanted to bring that up because that's where our main characters in our story today were. They were doing the right thing and everything was turned against them. Um, we're gonna, we're heading back into the life of the early church. The very beginning, the, ver- the first weeks and months of when the church was birthed. Back when, uh, when, back to the, the, the moment of Pentecost where Peter preaches the first Christian sermon and all these people who spoke different languages heard him in his, their own tongue and thousands of people came to Jesus. Back to the time, um, when the Bible says that they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Back to the time when, when Peter and John, for the very first time, were walking to the temple and they see this crippled beggar. Kellen preached on that last week, right? They see the crippled beggar and they reach out their hand and they, and they heal the man. And then they end up getting in trouble for it. Back to the time right after that when, when there were two people that were part of the church, that were part of this brand new church where everybody was kind of giving the, the money and the land that they had, and these two people came to the church and pretended to be more spiritual, pretended to be more giving than they actually were. Lied to the church, and most importantly, lied to the Holy Spirit. And you have this story where literally in the middle of the church, God strikes them dead. I'm serious. Read it. If you haven't read that story, Acts chapter 5, go read it. Ananias and Sapphira struck dead. And it's in this moment that we step into the life of the church. And people were excited about the church because there was power. There was, the Holy Spirit was moving and people were being healed and miraculous things were happening. So they were excited about it, but they were also petrified of this power because they heard what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted to be healed. But that same healing power freaked them out. Wouldn't it freak you out? Like, I, I've lied before. I don't want to be struck dead. So they were excited, but they were freaked out, and that's where we join. Now, because of it, because of it, people were flocking, not just in Jerusalem. People were flocking from around Jerusalem to hear these disciples, these apostles preach, and people were giving their lives to Jesus. Thousands of people were joining this cause, and the same people who had just killed Jesus a couple of months before now are freaking out about this group, and that's where we jump in. It says, the high priest and all his associates were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Have you ever done the right thing and everything goes wrong? Here they are. They're just preaching the gospel. They're healing people. People were sick and now they're well. People were blind and now they see. And what do they get for it? You get to spend a night in jail. That's fun. And so they're in jail. And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors to the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. It's like, we're in jail, we're rescued, awesome, thank you, angel. And the angel says, hey, you know what you did to get thrown in here? I want you to go do that again, please. And they didn't hesitate. They did it. They turned right around, they go back to the temple. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. And it's at this point that I think our, um, that our little story turns Benny Hill-like. You, you know what I mean? Like, you know, that's, it's like, because what happens is these guys, the, the, the priests all come back the next morning and they're going to like, they're really going to, you know, get these apostles. Um, and they get into their, their room and they send for the apostles 
And the guard goes down and he, and he sees that the doors are closed and the guards are standing ready and he go, they open the door and the apostles are nowhere to be found. And it's like nobody knows what's going on. Everybody's scared to death. They go and tell the, the uh, chief priests that they're not in the cells. They don't have any idea where they are. And, and all of a sudden somebody walks in. They're like, uh, yeah, um, I think we found them. You're not going to like it because they're right back where we took them the last time. And so they, well, what are we going to do? we got to go get them. So they go and they arrest them, but they're very, they're kind of worried because they know that these people, there are thousands of people now in Jerusalem who are believing what these people are saying. And so they're worried about arresting them. They're worried about a riot. And so they quietly bring these guys back in, all 12 apostles. They bring them back in to this um, chamber, this courthouse, if you will. And they are furious. I mean, they are hopping mad. And they're talking about doing terrible things to these people, these apostles. And, um, and while they're sort of discussing, what the heck are we going to do with these guys? We don't want to end up with a riot, but we don't, sure as heck don't want to end up with, um, with these guys taking over our jobs, right? Because not only were these guys the um, religious elite, they were also very wealthy because of it. They were powerful because of it. And so it wasn't just a religious threat that this new group of apostles were posing. It was, a, it was a financial and a power threat. And so they're discussing, what, what the heck are we going to do? And up, there's a man who's in the middle of it who stands up to make an argument. Now, you got to understand who this guy is. His name was Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was a, was a man who was kind of a, a rock star rabbi, a guy that everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew what he thought. He was smart. Um, he had a new understanding of how to, how to interpret the Old Testament. He had tons of followers. This Gamaliel guy was like, he was the real deal. And he steps up and he gives this long, long speech about all these different um, groups of people who have come and gone. All these different people who would rise up to say we're the, we know who the Messiah was. They came and they went. And he ends his speech like this. He says, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But, but if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. That's a smart dude, right? He's like, listen, either these guys are the real deal or they're not the real deal. If they're not the real deal, why are we worried? They're, gonna get, they're, they're not going to go anywhere. But if they are the real deal, why would we fight against it? Why would we fight against God? And so they let him go, and that was that, right? Not quite. Not quite. But they, he did convince them. Listen, this is how Luke writes it. It says, Gamaliel's speech persuaded them. And they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, I kind of, I kind of just read through something that I think is a little bigger than, than it might have come across as I read it. The word flogged. They had them flogged. Now, flogging, being flogged wasn't like getting a spanking, right? It's not like a slap on the wrist. G getting flogged was a big deal. The, there were lots of ways that they would, that, uh, they would flog you, but, but the, the most uh, common way was what was called 39 lashes. 39 lashes with a whip. That doesn't sound fun at all. I, I went, um, when, I was, when I was younger, uh, paintball was kind of becoming a thing, right? And, uh, 
And I took my friend Shelly, and we, we went up to sort of near Madison, and they had this place where people were doing paintball. Um, and, and I thought, this will be fun. We'll try it. So we, we drove up there, and she was petrified. I was a little petrified. I'll give you that. Um, she was petrified, and we, but we decided we're noobs, so we will, uh, we'll just do, like, the training run. And so it was, the way it worked is it was kind of a, it was just a pathway through the woods, and they had set up all of these targets that would, when you, when you went past it, they would pop up, and that it would, like, start shooting, um, you know, paintballs at you, and you'd have to hit the target, right? So it was kind of fun. And so we, she and I went together, and, sh and she was petrified. I was having a blast. And, you know, so we're, we're going through it, two, three, four targets in, and she's hiding behind me the whole time. Fine, I don't care. Um, but we get about to the fifth target, and she decides, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to shoot back at these targets. But, but instead of shooting around me or shooting over me, she shot me in the back 10 inches from my back. I had a welt this big for like two weeks. I thought I was going to die. That is one paintball. I want you to think about 39 lashes. 39 lashes with a whip. You shouldn't just walk past. They were flogged and let go because we're talking about something that was awful. It was not a slap on the wrist. It was painful. It was public and it was humiliating. And what was their reaction? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They rejoiced. What was their, they got 39 lashes most likely. What was their reaction? They rejoiced. Thank God we were allowed, we were counted worthy of suffering disgrace. What does it mean to rejoice in disgrace? That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time today. What does it mean to rejoice in disgrace? These men were beaten, they were bloodied, they were humiliated, and they were disgraced. And they felt honored for the opportunity. What kind of people react like that? I think disgrace is kind of a weird thing. It's not something we think of very much in our culture. I, it reminds me of when I was a kid, um, they made me read, uh, when I was like in high school, they made me read The Scarlet Letter. Anybody read The Scarlet Letter? Um, I didn't, but <laughs> let's just brush past that. Um, I saw the movie, uh, but I do. <laughs> Kids, do your homework. Um, but I... I, I I saw the movie, and it's, you know, it's this, it's this woman who was, who was caught in adultery, and they make her wear a, a scarlet A um, on her chest to make sure that everybody knows that she has shame. We don't do that kind of, thank the Lord, we don't do that kind of thing anymore. Um, but shame really isn't a big thing unless it's a, unless it's a huge piece of news or it's a celebrity person who's done it, Right. We just, we just and, and there's a reason why we don't have a lot of shame, uh, where, uh, not just shame, but disgrace. There's plenty of shame to go around, but there's not a lot of disgrace in our, and it, the reason is because we are, we have carefully cultivated our reputations. Everybody carefully cultivates their reputation. You do it, I do it. Um, you... 
Let's be honest. You post on Facebook the beautiful homemade meal that you made, and it's pretty, and you don't, didn't mention that all the rest of the days of the week you ate SpaghettiOs, right? Like, we, we, don't, we, we, we retweet articles that make us look like we're environmentally conscious or make us look like we're uber spiritual. We, we think about what we're going to put online, right? We do that in our, in our everyday regular life. We, we carefully cultivate the reputation that we have with the people that know us. And that's just part of our life. Everybody does that. But our reputations are carefully cultivated. Even the people who have the I don't care reputation, you know, like they want to let you know, I don't care what people think about me. That's a carefully cultivated reputation. It's the I don't care reputation. All of us do it. Even, uh, you know, my, I like to pretend that I'm the person... I would like to say that I don't care what anybody thinks about me, but that's a lie. It's a lie. Of course I care what people think about me. I I don't post a ton on social media, and there's a reason, because I know that it reflects, it lets people see into who I am. It makes them think about who I am, and I'm, I'm nervous about it. I'm careful about it. I don't want everybody, and so I only post a couple of different kinds of things on social media. One of them is anything I think that's funny right? Like I want to be funny or I want to say nice things about my family. And so that's really pretty much anything that I put on social media. Um, and that's fine, but there's a reason behind it. It's because I want people to think I'm funny, right? It's because I want people to think that I'm a good dad. Oh, what a good husband he is. We all do it. I have a, anytime I post anything spiritual, uh, this is me being raw and open for you. Anytime I post anything spiritual on Facebook, I'm always really careful how I do it because I'm thinking about all the people I know who don't know Jesus. And I'm, I'm worried how they're going to judge me. I'm just being real. I, I, they all know that I'm a pastor, but at least I'm not one of those wackadoo pastors. You know what I mean? Like, I want to be, be a cool pastor. It's because I care. I, I carefully cultivate my reputation, just like everybody does. But it begs the question, knowing that we care so much about our reputation, it begs the question, who am I really? Who am I? Does my online persona really describe who I am, or is it filled with a bunch of half-truths? And forget, forget social media. What about, what about in real life? Who am I? What is it that that makes me me? Is it the sum total of all my experiences, right? I think sometimes we think that way. Is, am I the sum total of all the experiences that I have? Is my identity determined by my upbringing or my friendships or my social status or my job or my marriage or my kids or any of the million things that we put together that gives us who we are, who we think we are. If somebody asks you, who are you really? I wonder how you pull that together, how you define who you are. And, and it matters. These questions matter. These questions about reputation matter in our conversation because disgrace is the destruction of our carefully crafted reputations. We're, we're going to talk about what it means to rejoice in disgrace. We have to understand what di- disgrace is. Disgrace happens 
when our carefully crafted reputations are somehow destroyed. The apostles rejoiced when their carefully crafted reputations were destroyed. And I wonder what it would look like in this culture at this time to actually set aside my own reputation for the sake of Jesus. What would it mean to rejoice in disgrace online? What would it mean to rejoice in disgrace for the sake of Jesus at my work, with my family, with my friends? And here's a question. Do I even want to? That's a really good question. Because rejoicing in disgrace sounds really good in a sermon. It really stinks in real life, right? Who wants disgrace? Do I really want to? Does that mean that I have to be weird? Does that mean that I have to be radical, you know, like this wackadoo Christian that's out there? Do I have to be weird and radical in order to be a good Christian? And the reality is the, the, the term good Christian isn't even what we're talking about here. What we're really asking is who are you really? Where does your identity come from? How do you define yourself? These apostles, their lives had been radically altered by the gospel, radically altered by their relationship with Jesus. They were not the same people that they were three years before, right? Radically altered people. And because of it, the gospel, their relationship with Jesus was no longer just one of the things that they used to define themselves. It moved to the center of their identity. Way too often, I answer the who am I question with things about my personality or my accomplishments or my family. And Jesus is just one of all those things that I would lump together to describe who I am as a person. And that's, that is one of the reasons why I can't imagine rejoicing in disgrace. Because I have too much to lose. I'm holding on to too much other stuff when it comes to my identity. I hold on too tightly to my own carefully crafted reputation. I wonder if you could say that about yourself. I hold on too tightly to my own carefully crafted reputation because Jesus is just one small part of that reputation. See, the more I begin to identify my relationship with Jesus as the core of my identity, the easier it gets to rejoice in disgrace. Now, I want to say a couple of things before we go on here because <clears throat> there are people who might hear this sermon and think what I really want to do in order to be able to rejoice in disgrace is I got to get online and be a jerk about it, right? I got to get online and post something really um, like uber Christian or political. Rejoicing in disgrace is not about shouting theological, political, or societal opinions on Facebook. Can we all agree to that? That's not what this is about. It is also not about creating what I call persecution scenarios. People do this. 
And it's, um, it's kind of a gross thing. It's, it's where a, a, a Christian will pick a fight with somebody because they know that somebody is going to disagree with them. And they pick, a, pick the fight so that they will be persecuted and feel good about their faith because they're being persecuted. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen this before? I had a friend, um, I had a friend who worked at a, a factory for 25 years. And she, every day she would go to the factory and she would ta- tell all of her co-workers that they need to stop sleeping around. And they need to stop doing drugs and drinking. They need to stop smoking and all the terrible things that they were doing. You can guess how that went over at work. How much she was loved. At, they hated her. I mean, they hated her. And every day she would go to work and they treated her like crud. They would do awful things. They would do, they would, they would do pranks that were inappropriate they would say terrible things to her. They, they treated her like dirt for 25 years. And there was one time I, I was talking to her, and I just said, you know, and she was talking about how these people were, would do these things to her. I said, why do you, why do you continue? Why? And I, as nicely as I could say, I said, why don't you just shut your mouth, right? And what I realized in that conversation was that she loved it. She loved feeling persecuted because it made her feel like she was being persecuted for her faith. The problem was she wasn't being persecuted for her faith. She was being persecuted because she was a jerk. She was being persecuted because she was judgmental. She wasn't being persecuted for her faith. Rejoicing in disgrace is all about what you're being disgraced for. Um, the, let's go back to the apostles. Here they were out in the temple courts. They weren't looking to pick a fight. They weren't looking to be jerks. They were simply and humbly telling the story of the gospel and what it did in their lives. And their identities were so centered on Jesus while they did it that when they were disgraced, they counted it joyful. And so if you're, if you're disgraced for your political beliefs or for your judgmentalism, that's not what we're talking about. But if your carefully cultivated reputation suffers because you're vulnerable about how the gospel has saved you and your identity is centered on Jesus, then rejoicing in disgrace comes naturally. That's what it means. We're not rejoicing in disgrace because we got in an argument and somebody persecuted us. If somehow our reputation suffers. If somebody thinks a little less of me because I said something true, that I said something about the gospel, And my reputation suffers there. I get to rejoice there. There's a reason why I don't always post all the sort of uber-Christian-y things that I see on Facebook. There's a reason why when I'm having a a beer with my friend that I I think I can have a beer with him and it makes him him feel comfortable. And we can connect. And I don't want to be that jerk pastor who is always, you know, um, telling him that everything that he does is wrong. 
But I, I, I'll be honest with you. There's, there's something I take pride in that. But I'll tell you t- the truth. I, I'm, I'm less willing to bring up spiritual things than I ought to be. I'm less willing to share what the gospel means to me than I ought to be in those moments. It's because I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried about what it's going to do to my reputation, what they're going to think of me. I wonder if you've ever been there. And so um, I wanted to ask you to think about two things today before we close up. Uh, first of all, I want to I ask you to think about where Jesus is in your identity. Because um, for, for a lot of us, and for, for me a lot of the time, Jesus is just one of the things that makes up all of my identity. And it's not an either or. It's not either Jesus is one of the things or he's the center. It's kind of a sliding scale. And it, and it changes depending on the time of my life, depending on who I'm talking to, depending on what's going on in my life. But it's good here and there to take stock of where that is. How central is Jesus to who I see that I am? And the way that I can figure that out is how willing am I to share it? How open am I when it comes to my friends who don't know Jesus? How how much does the gospel come out of me? How centered is Jesus in your identity? I just thought it's worth taking a look at that. And then the second thing. I wanted to ask you if you'd be willing to look for opportunities to be open and vulnerable about the work of the gospel in your life. Might be online. And again, we're not talking about being a jerk. Talking about being vulnerable. This is what the gospel has meant. This is what Jesus has meant to me. Maybe it's a conversation that you know you should have had, you should have at least brought up Jesus with this person you've known for 12 years. And you never have. And if I ask you that, and I say those things, and that person comes to your mind, and you get a little nervous about what that means, maybe that's something we need to work with God on. How central is Jesus to who I am? But what I want to say is if your reputation suffers for the sake of the honest sharing of a grace-filled, non-judgmental, grace-filled gospel, and if Jesus becomes the core or moves toward the core of your identity, you are freed up to rejoice in disgrace because our identities get recentered on Jesus. I think doing it, I think speaking it out loud actually pulls Jesus closer to the center. I think what we, in our minds, what we want to do is we want to get Jesus to the center so we'll feel good about reaching out and speaking out. But the reality is the more we do it, the more Jesus gets closer to the center of our identities. And that's what really matters. That's what it means to rejoice in disgrace. Would you pray with me?